Our, our text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You will find this passage on page 987 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by, the, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who, are, who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead will, in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Durham. You may be seated. We are almost done with Thessalonians. We have one more sermon next week. And then we will be doing a short little series called Life Together, uh, really about the life in the church, a three-part series. Um, I think the first one's called Why We Sing, the second, Why We Serve, the third, Why We Share. And so then that'll lead us right into Advent. So, uh, and that will begin, we'll begin Genesis and Advent. So uh, we're getting there. We're getting there through 1 Thessalonians. Let me pray for us, and we'll take a look at these specific verses from this letter to the Thessalonian church. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the many gifts of the people of grace. Thank you for the musicians, the readers. Thank you for our elders who care for us and pray for us. Thank you for uh, the word of God. And I pray this morning that we as a people, you've gathered us here. May we be confident in that. We have things we need to learn. We have things we need to confess. We have things we need to be convicted of. We have things we need to remember. And I pray that your spirit would be active in this time in all of our hearts to show us those things. Thank you that your word is living and active. And I pray that we would experience that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so far in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians We've had some reminders, we've had some encouragements. Last week we saw some commands. And now in this passage, we really come to the main reason that this letter was written. And that main reason is misinformation. Misinformation. Um, we are not strangers to misinformation. <laughs> uh, think about how much that idea comes up in our world. I was thinking this week about the 90s. If you're alive in the 90s, you may remember the ad campaign, The More You Know. Boo doo doo doo. You remember this? And I watched one this week with Matthew Perry, and it was awful and it was ridiculous, but stay in school, kids. That's really what it was about. Um, we have whole websites now that we have the internet that check facts. That's what they do. They check facts. Um, we have companies uh, that are media companies, and they have whole departments that, that check facts. That's what they do. Why is this important? What does that communicate? It communicates that misinformation's bad. And truth is good. Misinformation's bad, truth is good. But what makes labeling misinformation and labeling truth so insane in our world? Well, uh, the world has a fluid definition of truth. 
It's fluid. It really, if you look at it and, and you're non-biased, you just look at the data, truth depends on what is popular and it changes by the day. So as we try to label what is truth and label what is misinformation, um, it, it becomes a, a, an exercise of anxiety. You may have been declaring the truth one day and the next day you're now cast aside. And so we have this idea in the worldly system that there's this shifting foundation in the world. Jesus talks about this, this idea. In Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the difference between two kinds of belief. He says it this way. This would be found in verses 24 through 27, again, of Matthew 7. Jesus declares, anyone who hears these words of mine, his teaching, and does them is like what? A wise man who builds his house on the rock. Builds his house on a rock. And the wind comes and the rain comes and the storm happens. And what happens? The house stays standing. So there's this idea of a, a solid truth on which you can build your life. And that is listening to and obeying the words of Jesus Christ. But then he says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, this shifty, unstable foundation. And what happens? The rain comes, the wind comes, the storm happens. The house has a great fall is what the text says. We could look at what Jesus is saying and think, well, that's an astute description of society today. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because human wisdom has not stopped being shifty since there's been human wisdom. The, the wisdom and the, and the truth and the misinformation, that labeling system in the world has always been shaky. Always. It's always been shifting, always been changing, always been unstable. And there's always only been one truth that is a stabilizing truth. There's only one truth that's a true source of hope, and that is God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's the truth. That's the truth. So we have this letter in 1 Thessalonians, written not 50 years after the Sermon on the Mount, where Paul is expressing the same truth to the Thessalonians, that misinformation is bad and there is hope and stability and truth. And some 2,000 years later, we're reading this and this, and this passage is expressing the same truth to us. <clears throat> there is truth, there's hope in the truth and praise the Lord, we have access to the truth. And so as we look at this passage Paul starts off with this same idea that the world is, is communicating, and it's not a bad idea, but they, the, the way they go about solving the problem is not good. But here in verse 13, he says, misinformation is bad, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Uninformed, the same root word as the word agnostic, means to not know. <clears throat> There's a misunderstanding happening in the Thessalonican church. And specifically, we'll see this in a minute, it's about those who had recently died and what that means for their salvation, what that means with the gospel. And so the cause of information, if we remember, what happened? Paul and Timothy are in Thessalonica. They're rushed out of town. They're kicked out of town. And and them leaving before giving the full gospel, the full teaching of, of theology, left this void of information. And in that void seeped several ideas. Several ideas. One was that Jesus had come already. 
and that caused despair in some. What? We missed it. We missed it. Or others thought, well, he must be coming soon. And so some people had actually quit living a normal life. They had quit living that life and were now uh, uh, either uh, they had quit their jobs, they had quit doing normal things, or people were, were saying, you know what? Our bodies are about to be destroyed anyway, so why not live our lives now? But here specifically, there was a a good chunk of the church that had serious concerns about what happens to people who had died. Look at verse 13 again, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for dead. It's not uh, uh, meant to be anything um, intriguing. It's just a way of saying they're dead. And Paul says, okay, I don't want you to be misinformed, so what am I going to do? Verse, the end of verse 13, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. The truth The truth is going to put their minds at ease. He does not want them to be uninformed about what happens with these people who have already passed away. He wants them to not grieve as those who have no hope. So he's going to give them the truth and from the truth, give them hope. Thankfully, Paul just kind of lays it out straight. Here we go. Verse 14. What's the truth? Here's the truth. The first section of verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died. So the first truth that he brings up is that Jesus died. Jesus died. So Jesus was a real person. He really experienced the the things that caused someone to die, and he was fully dead. The, The death of Jesus in Christian theology marks the payment which reconciles God to his people. There's this word called atonement, atonement. And it's actually one of the few theological words based in English. You can see what it means in the word, at one meant. Two parties separated, in this case, God and humankind by sin were made one again through the death of Jesus Christ. What comfort is there in atonement? Atonement the reconciliation of God and his people through the death of Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to have a confession of sin in our bulletins. Our sin is covered over. The blood of Jesus Christ is both a covering agent and a purifying agent. So the the blood of Jesus, as God looks at us, it has covered us as we we find faith in Jesus by grace. The blood of Jesus has covered us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees the payment for our sins. And not only is it like a a, a cosmic uh, looking over of our sin, our sin is actually made right. Wrongs are made right. We're changed and purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. What hope is there in that? What hope is there in the fact that our debt is paid in full? (laughs) Just that idea, that language gives us hope. Thinking about if we have debt of some kind, whether it's our house or our car, the idea of our debt being paid in full is a relief. Our sin debt to God in Jesus Christ is paid in full. What does that mean? We are free to relate to our creator. We're free to do it. There's no obstacle. We're free to follow Christ. 
We read this passage from Isaiah a lot at our church. I love this passage. It's a prophecy from the Old Testament anticipating the coming of Jesus and what it might mean. So Isaiah 55, 1, here's what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is only possible through the death of Jesus Christ. The truth continues in verse 14. And he rose again. So not only did Jesus die, he is resurrected. He rose again. What does this mean? Our king, our master, our savior, Jesus, by his resurrection has demonstrated his limitless power. Limitless power. Not even death could hold Christ down. Not only is there this figurative spiritual defeat of our enemy and the covering of our sin, but Jesus took care of the consequences of our sin. Death. The comfort of resurrection combines with the comfort of atonement. Yes, our sin is covered. Yes, God sees Jesus in us. Yes, we are purified by his blood. But not only that, the punishment for sin is defeated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ defeated our sin, not just today, not just back then. It didn't just set us to zero. It actually, it marks the death of sin for eternity for us. It is done. It's gone. We contend with it in this life and it'll be gone at our death. What hope is there in that? Well, the same power that raised Jesus Christ is the same power that revives our hearts to see him and see his truth. The same power that raised Jesus Christ enables our obedience. The same power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ invigorates our following of Jesus in this life. What comfort is there in the resurrection? We have to understand this, church. As Christians in Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection, a resurrection envelops us on every side. We can't escape it. It is ours. It's ours. Another Old Testament passage anticipating this truth comes from Ezekiel. What a great story this is. First of all, this is what the passage says, and then a, and a vision follows it for the, for the prophet. He says this, God speaking to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I, will put, and I will put a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now the story goes in Ezekiel that God says, prophesy this over this vision you're having. And so what's the vision? This big field of dead and bleached bones. And so Ezekiel prophesies this, and what happens? The bones rattle, and flesh connects, and, the, and these bones become real people, and then breath is breathed into them, and then who are they? They're the army of God, the people of God, brought back to life. That's the power of the resurrection. It's not just about Jesus defeating death. It's about him bringing all of us with him in his defeat of death. And so Jesus was really resurrected. It happened. He was really resurrected in power, and that power is used on us, for us, by God. So these two things, 
that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, it seems to be where the knowledge of the Thessalonians stopped. And so here we have something new for them. And we see by this phrase, even so. So Paul is about to address the anxiety of their misinformation. What did they not understand? Well, okay, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, but now people are dying. What do we do about that? They've been thrown into a tizzy. Tizzy is Greek for panic and despair. It's not at all. That's a made up. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to lay out the rest of the truth, the whole truth. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus was resurrected. Well, there's this other thing they need to know, and here it is. Even so, he says in verse 14, through Jesus, God will bring with those, him, those who have fallen asleep. Paul's basic statement here in the end of verse 14 is the dead are not missing out. Don't fret. Don't fret. The dead are not missing out. Death is not the end. Death is not a punishment. The resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of his people. When he comes, he will bring those who have died already in his name with him. But just to make sure they know, it's not just the dead who are going to be risen again. Look at verse 15. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't go first, but we're not going to be left out. We're not going to be left out. The dead will rise, but the living will be resurrected, made new. Paul kind of gets into more details on this in Philippians 3. And actually, this is the, the remainder of a section of Scripture that we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about how the enemies of the cross, what, their God is their belly. And then this is how it, it continues. But our citizenship, he says to the Philippian church, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to, be subject, to subject all things to himself. We will be made new. This is the new information. Jesus died. Jesus will be resurrected. The, the, those you love who are in Jesus Christ who have died will also be resurrected, and so will we. We will too. And then we come to verses 16 and 17. Now, these verses have been made controversial by time, okay? Uh, let me read them to you, and then we'll talk about two different interpretations here. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord and the air. First thing, you see how this connects to the truth that Paul is unfolding. First the dead, then the alive will be made new with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> These two verses have been used by a, a particular flavor of theology called dispensational theology. Dispensational, we're going to use some big words, there's no quiz. Um, to describe the rapture. So this is probably a, a, a a teaching you've run into. The rapture is a very American Christian idea, okay? Um, it's really where that idea was solidified. The dispensational theology very quickly believes that God acts differently at different times in the world, in the history of the world, that the Bible actually is meant for different people, that God's people are actually divided into uh, Israel and then Gentiles. 
And God operating in these different ages, these dispensations where the word comes from, he needs to, at the end of, of time, the church age, which we are currently in, remove Gentiles from the planet to finish what he's going to do with Israel. That's the teaching of the rapture, okay? That's the teaching of the rapture. Now, some of you who have grown up in a Baptist church or a dispensational church are very familiar with these terms. Um, and so you, you may be thinking, oh yeah, that's it. Well, we are a, a church that's not dispensational in our theology. We're covenantal. Covenantal, another big word. What does that mean? We, we believe as a church that the Bible is not divided. It's one story. We believe that as a church, God's people aren't divided. We're one people. God intended from the beginning for Jesus to come and save all people through his death and through his resurrection, and that's always been the story. And so in covenantal theology, we don't need a rapture for it to make sense. We don't need it. And so when we see a passage like this, we don't have to imagine another version of Jesus coming to do something special. He's simply coming to judge the living and the dead. This is it. The one return of Jesus. You can see even in the context in verse 14, what is happening? God is bringing those who've come, fallen asleep. So as God comes, he's coming one time and he's bringing all the saints who've passed away with him to join us on earth. And so what is this language of meeting Jesus in the air, I want you to think of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What happened? As Jesus rode the colt into Jerusalem, people came out of their homes to meet the person they were hailing as king. This is the same thing, but it's the final triumphal entry. As our king, our conqueror, our savior comes, we come out to meet him. So let's talk about what's important. We have two different views before us. What's important? I was reading a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones this week. He's not necessarily known to make jokes, but I found this funny. He said, why argue about the best room uh, to be in when the whole house is on fire, okay? Um, why argue about what's better when the whole situation calls for something different? Paul is certainly expressing one view of eschatology. Paul's not double-tongued. He's saying Jesus will return. He's saying Jesus, we will meet him when he returns, but it's not the details of that eschatology that are his main emphasis. He's not proving the Thessalonians wrong or proving them right. What is he doing? He's giving them hope. He's giving them hope. And so what is important? What is important is that last phrase of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. The hope of the promise of eternity with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> always and forever. What's important? It's important that Jesus died. He paid for our sins. Important. What's important? Jesus rose again. He defeated death. He has real power, real resurrection power. What's important? Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, alive or dead, our triumphant king is returning, and when he does, it'll be all new, it'll be all Christ, it'll be for all time. The more you know. Boo -doo. It's not, I didn't plan to do that. It just seemed right. All right. The more you know. That's the truth here. That's the hope. The truth that brings hope is that Jesus died. He rose again. He's coming again. And he really wraps up this portion with a command in verse 18. Therefore, because of what I've just said, encourage one another with these words. 
encourage one another with these words. Encourage is in the present active right now, ongoing. Encourage one another with these words. In this world where we face misinformation all the time, in a world where we might be anxious or fearful or angry about that misinformation, what can we learn, church? We learned this morning that the wholeness of the gospel dispels fear. It dispels despair. And so as we go back even to the idea of the first sermon for 1 Thessalonians, where is hope for now found in the past and the future truth of Jesus Christ? The hope for now is in Jesus Christ. As a way of kind of applying this passage, the question might be, well, how do we appropriate hope in our everyday lives? Okay, Ransom, I hear you. Great, Jesus died and rose again. Wonderful, he's coming again, sweet. How do I have hope? How do I have hope? Two things. First, we cannot find hope in the now from the past and the future work of Jesus without prayer. Without prayer. And specifically, we need to pray that the reality, the reality of our glorious future in Christ and with Christ, that it would seep into our every day. We need to pray that God would help us believe it more. We need him to, to empower us to believe it we need to ask him to insert that hope, remind us of that hope when things go difficult. And so in our life groups, in our cohorts, in our Bible studies, we need to be praying specifically for the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Jesus coming again. And honestly, let's just pray for this, for people in our lives without even asking them. <laughs> let's ambush them with this prayer. Hope of the future and the past of Jesus Christ, lifting them up out of their despair. And the second thing is more practical. Prayer is saying, Jesus, we can't do this without you. The second really is us responding to the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we come to situations that seem hopeless, we need to respond on purpose. Respond on purpose. So, Rather than respond in despair to a situation that seems despairing, we can hope for healing, hope for justice, hope for peace. Rather than respond with anger, we can hope in the fact that we are together in Christ now and for eternity. We together will meet him as he brings those who've already passed. Rather than respond with anxiety, we can hope in the truth of the past, my sin is covered completely. Death is defeated. We can hope in the future. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, we will celebrate. He will be eternally victorious, and we will be with him and like him. And so it's completely appropriate this morning as we go to the Lord's Supper that we listen to another Old Testament passage. Again from Isaiah, another Old Testament passage that tells us of our future. And so this morning, let me read to you Isaiah 25, six through nine. 
listen to our future. Listen to our hope. This is our hope. Our circumstances are not our hope. Our health diagnosis is not our hope. How things go at work or at home are not our hope. Happiness is not our hope. This is our hope. Here is the message. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Lord's Supper is a rehearsal of that. It's a rehearsal of that. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, yes, we're remembering what Christ has done. We are accepting by grace what he has done for us and how that, what that means for us. But we're also looking forward in hope and taking a piece of bread and taking a small drink of wine or juice. And we're saying, this, is, this will do for now as we wait for the thing that's coming. So this morning, this morning, if we confess in our lives, we are without hope, without the truth, or without hope, without Jesus. We are sinners saved by grace alone. If we confess that, if we profess that Jesus and his work on the cross, his work in his life, and his coming again is our only hope for salvation. If we believe those things, we profess those things, we've been baptized, we're invited to rehearse this feast this morning. And I pray that we come and celebrate genuinely together. If you find yourself hoping in anything else, if you find yourself hoping in misinformation, I want to say, first of all, there is no hope in hoping in misinformation. There's only one truth, and that truth is revealed to us by Jesus, and that truth is Jesus. If you do not rely on Jesus, you have no hope. So this morning, the Bible would say, that if you are in that camp, if you're in that opinion that, that Jesus is not your only hope, it does not make sense for you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's just take a moment to quiet our hearts. Those of you who are called to the table as friends and brothers of Jesus, let us put our heart in a place of celebration this morning. And then we will, I'll gather us back together with a moment of uh, prayer, excuse me, a prayer of blessing. Father, thank you that you haven't simply told us who you are and how insignificant we are compared to you. You haven't just told us that plus our sin, our separation from you. 
you haven't just told us those things and that there is a way to be saved through Jesus. You haven't just told us those things, but you've given us the details. You've left nothing to mystery. We cannot save ourselves. Only you can. And so you've said, through the non-work of faith, you'll give us grace. And so this morning, thank you for walking with us. Thank you for stooping so low to give us the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. May the bread and the juice or the wine this morning remind us of what you have done. May we be empowered by your grace in it. May we trudge forward through this dark and broken world with a hope, a hope that those who grieve without hope do not have. We need Jesus. Praise you. We have him. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.